And also big thanks to Alejandro for holding the space uh, this evening. Appreciate it. All right, so since I, I think a few more people uh, joined since we started, and again, my name is Eli. I'm gonna be facilitating Young Urban Zen uh, this evening. Uh, so now I will share some words. Uh, after that, we will have some time for Q&A, um, a little journaling, we'll get snuck in there and then um, split up into small groups and carry on the discussion a bit. So very, very good to be here with you all. So uh, today we at Zen Center um, recognize uh, Bodhidharma's memorial, uh, one of our great ancestors uh, in, in China who tore off his eyelids to awaken. It's one of the, the things that he's known for. for. And uh, I think it's interesting, it wasn't planned, but uh, perhaps is relevant to this evening's uh, talk. So you may have seen by the, the email or announcement that um, we're, I was gonna share a childhood uh, story that my mom used to read to me that I didn't recognize until um, more recently that it was actually the uh, path of the Bodhisattva or uh, the Bodhisattva path, however you'd like to, to look at it. So we're gonna start by um, hopping into to that reading. Let me go ahead and share my computer here. And uh, it's over on my other screen, so I'm gonna be looking away. Uh, Alejandro, can I get a thumbs up if you see it? All right, so here we go. And I do warn you, I'm gonna try to use different voices for different characters. I, I <laughs> hope that turns out. Um, so once there was a young mouse who lived in the brush near a great river. During the day, he and other mice hunted for food. At night, they gathered to hear the old ones tell stories. The young mouse liked to hear about the desert beyond the river, and he got the shivers from the stories about the dangerous shadows that lived in the sky. But his favorite was the tale of the far off land. The far off land sounded so wonderful, the young mouse began to dream about it. He knew he would never be content until he had been there. The old ones warned that the journey would be long and perilous, but the young mouse would not be swayed. He set off one morning before the sun had risen. It was the evening before he reached the edge of the brush before him was the river, on the other side, the desert. The young mouse peered into the deep water. How will I ever get across, he said in dismay. Don't you know how to swim, called a gravelly voice. The young mouse looked around and saw a small green frog. Hello, he said, what is swim? This swimming, said the frog, and she jumped into the river. Oh, said the young mouse, I don't think I can do that. 
Why do you need to cross the river? Asked the frog, hopping back up the bank. I want to go to the far off land, said the young mouse. It sounds, so, it sounds too beautiful to live a lifetime and not see it. In that case, you will need my help. I'm Magic Frog. Who are you? I'm Mouse, said the young mouse. Magic Frog laughed. That's not a name. I'll give you a name that'll help you on your journey. I name you Jumping Mouse. As soon as the Magic Frog said this, the young mouse felt a strange tingling in his legs. He hopped a, he hopped a small hop and to his surprise, jumped twice as high as he had ever jumped before. Thank you, he said, admiring his new powerful legs. You're welcome, said Magic Frog. Now step onto this leaf and we'll cross the river together. When they were safely on the other side, Magic Frog said, you will encounter hardships on your way, but don't despair. You'll reach the far-off land if you keep hope alive within you. Jumping Mouse set off at once, hopping quickly from bush to bush. The shadow circled above, but he avoided being seen. He ate berries when he couldn't find them, or when he could find them, and slept only when he was exhausted. Days passed. Though he was able to travel quickly, he began to wander if he'd wonder if he'd ever reached the other side of the desert. He came upon a stream that coursed through the dry land, and under a large berry bush, he met a fat old mouse. What strange hind legs you have, said the fat mouse. They were a gift from the magic frog when she named me, said Jumping Mouse proudly. Huff, snorted the fat mouth. What good are they? They've helped me come this far across the desert, and with luck, they'll carry me to the far off land, said Jumping Mouse. But now I'm very tired. May I rest here a while? Indeed you may, said the fat mouse. In fact, you can stay forever. Thank you, but I'll only stay until I'm rested. I've seen the far off land in my dreams and I must be on my way as soon as I'm able. Dreams, said the fat mouth scornfully. I used to have dreams, but all I ever found was desert. Why go jumping about the desert when everything anyone needs is right here? Jumping mouse tried to explain that it wasn't a question of need, but something he felt he had to do. But the fat mouse only snorted again. Finally, Jumping Mouse dug a hole and curled up for the night. The next day, fat, the fat mouse warned him to stay on this side of the stream. A snake lives on the other side, he said. But don't worry, he's afraid of the water, so he'll never cross the stream. Life was easy beneath the berry bush, and Jumping Mouse soon rested and was strong. He and the fat mouse ate and slept and then slept and ate. Then one morning, when he went to the stream for a drink, he caught a sight of his own reflection. 
He was almost as fat as the fat old mouse. It's time for me to go on, thought Jumping Mouse. I didn't come all this way to settle under a berry bush. Just then, he noticed that a branch had gotten caught in the narrow of the stream. It spanned the water like a bridge the snake could now cross. Jumping Mouse hurried back to warn the fat mouse, but the mouse hole was empty and there was a strange smell in the air, snake. Jumping Mouse was too late. Poor old friend, he thought as he hurried away. He lost hope of finding his dreams and now his life is over. Jumping Mouse traveled throughout the night and the next morning he saw that he had re reached a grassy plain. Exhausted, he hopped towards a large boulder where he could rest safely. But as he got closer, he realized the boulder was an enormous shaggy bison lying in the grass. Every once in a while, it groaned. Jumping Mouse shivered at the horrible sound. Hello, great one, he said bravely. I'm Jumping Mouse and I'm traveling to the far off land. Why do you, why do you sound as if you were dying? Because I am dying, said the bison. I drank from poison stream and it blinded me. I can't see to find tender grass or eat sweet water to drink. I'll surely die. Jumping Mouse was sad to see so wondrous of a beast so helpless. When I began my journey, he said, Magic Frog gave me an, a name and strong legs to carry me to the far off land. My magic is not as powerful as hers, but I'll do what I can to help you. I name you Eyes of a Mouse. As soon as he had spoken, Jumping Mouse heard the bison snort with joy. He heard, but he could no longer see, for he had given the bison his own sight. Thank you. I, oh no, thank you. Oh no, thank you, said Eyes of a Mouse. You are small, but you have done a great thing. If you hop along beneath me, the shadows of the sky won't see you and I will guide you to the mountains. Jumping Mouse did as he was told. He hopped to the rhythm of the bison's hooves and in this way, he reached the foot of the mountains. I am an animal of the plain, so I must stop here, said Eyes of a Mouse. How will you cross the mountains when you can't see? There'll be a way, said Jumping Mouse. Hope is alive within me. He said goodbye to his friend and then dug a hole and went to sleep. The next morning, Jumping Mouse woke to a cool breeze that blew down from the mountain peaks. Cautiously, he set out in the direction of the coolness. He had not gone far when he felt fur beneath his paws. He jumped back in alarm and sniffed the air. Wolf! He froze in terror. But when nothing happened, he gathered up his courage and said, excuse me, I'm Jumping Mouse, and I'm traveling to the far off land. Can you tell me the way? 
I would if I could, said the wolf. But a wolf finds his way with his nose, and mine will no longer smell for me. What happened? asked Jumping Mouse. I was once a proud and lazy creature, replied the wolf. I misused the gift of smell, and so I lost it. I have learned not to be so proud, but without my nose to tell me where I am and where I'm going, I cannot survive. I'm lying here waiting for the end. Jumping Mouse was saddened by the wolf's story. He told him about magic frog and eyes of a mouse. I have a little magic left, he said. I'd be happy to help you. I name you Nose of a Mouse. The wolf howled for joy. Jumping Mouse could hear him sniffing the air, taking in the mountain fragrances, but Jumping Mouse could no longer smell the pine-scented breezes. He no, he no longer had the use of his nose or eyes. You are a small, you, but you are a small creature, said Nose of a Mouse, but you have given me a great gift. You must let me thank you. Come, hop along beneath where the shadows of the sky won't see you. I will guide you through the mountains to the far off land. So Jumping Mouse hopped to the rhythm of the wolf's padding paws. And in this way, he reached the far off land. I am not an animal of the mountains, so I must stop here, said Nose of a Mouse. How will you manage if I can no longer, oh no, how will you manage if you can no longer see or smell? There'll be a way, said Jumping Mouse. He then said goodbye to his friend, dug a hole and went to sleep. The next morning, Jumping Mouse woke up and crawled from his hole. I'm here, he said. I feel the earth beneath my paws. I hear the wind rustling, uh, the, the wind rustling leaves on the trees. The sun warms my bones. All is not lost, but I'll never be as I was. How will I ever manage? Then the mouse began to cry. Jumping mouse, he heard a gravelly voice say. Magic frog, is that you? Jumping mouse asked, swallowing his tears. Yes, said magic frog. Don't cry, jumping mouse. Your unselfish spirit has brought you great hardship, but it is that same spirit of hope and compassion that has brought you to the far off land. You have nothing to fear, Jumping Mouse. Jump high, Jumping Mouse, the magic frog commanded. Jumping Mouse did as he was told and jumped as high as he could. Then he felt the air lift him higher still into the sky. He stretched out his paws in the sun and felt strangely powerful. To his joy, he began to see the wondrous beauty of the world above and below and smell the scent of the earth and the sky and living things. Jumping mouse, he heard the fro magic frog call. I give you a new name. You are now called Eagle and you will live in the far off land forever. The end.
And I have to say, I forgot to mention that that uh, book was written by John Steptoe and is based off of a native uh, folktale. So if you ever want to read a more, there's a fuller version uh, that's not you know, child um, uh, book size, uh, I encourage you to do so. Um, so what this story uh, evokes for me is a sense of vow, uh, a sense of committing to our innermost calling uh, or our deepest values perhaps. So just as Jumping Mouse uh, stepped forward with vulnerability and courage to awaken himself and those who he met on the path, um, this really is the, the Bodhisattva journey. And while many of us aren't trying to reach you know, some far off land, we do, in a sense with our practice, try to become enlightened beings. And so one um, you know, thing that, that comes up for me, or at least a question after thinking about this is what stops us from that awakening? So um, as I was twirling that, that question around, uh, it was actually in part answered in a, a training that um, a lot of Zen Center folks are taking that's around equity and inclusion in Buddhist sanghas. And what surfaced uh, was in a part of it, they were, um, the, the teacher was uh, presenting and statistically speaking, uh, it's shown in very high percentages that most people, most uh, organizations, um, most sanghas, or, or even like the US in, in general, state that uh, inclusion and uh, equity are top value. And I'm going somewhere with this. But uh, so why do, just as, as you know, I was thinking why we have such a hard time awakening, how come these different groups have such a difficult time with equity and inclusion, which is obviously one of the, or two of the, the marks of a bodhisattva. And what was brought forth in that same presentation is while we have these so-called stated values, we also um, come with hidden values. And these hidden values often come uh, or bring tension with our, our stated values. And for the most part, we're kind of unaware that that's going on. So I wanted to speak about that a little bit um, to help, I guess, us reflect on, on our path. So in the uh, case of our stated value of, let's say, equity and in inclusion, um, many organizations have hidden values. Uh, and this is speaking primarily around diversity. So uh, many organizations have this hidden value of reliance on white privilege and the ease that comes along with it. And you know, I think, again, this is the same for our stated value or a vow of enlightenment um, or to be there for all beings. Uh, we often, at least, and I'm gonna to speak to, to some of my hidden values uh, that actually prevent us or bring tension uh, to that, that stated path. So when it comes to the uh, vow that we take up in practice, uh, one of the questions that comes up is what are we willing to commit to? And then also what are we willing to give up for the benefit of all beings? 
Um, and not just all beans. We don't have to cut off our eyes like Bodhidharma or uh, give our senses away like jumping mouse. But, um, you know, and also really to remember that uh, all beings includes ourselves. I think that's an important part to remember. So I have two examples uh, that I, I wanted to share um, personally on how this kind of dynamic shows up. So the, the first one is a couple of weeks ago, I was walking down the street with my four-year-old daughter, Maya, and uh, she asked a question. We saw a friend that was living on the street and she said, how can we, you know, how can we help uh, that friend? He you know, doesn't have a, a home or food. And so I found myself replying by speaking about how, well, your mom and I donate to this cause and that cause. We, we do outreach through Zen Center and hand out food from time to time. And um, not that I, I feel like I needed to like necessarily stop right then and there and do something, but maybe I could have. Um, but what, what came up for me or what I questioned myself in that moment is I do have this stated value of saving all beings. And in that moment, and maybe too often, I work from my hidden value of comfort and security of my own life and wanting to just go about the day as planned. You know, we were going, uh, I forget where, I think to the botanical garden for the, the piano um, playing that they had and just wanted to move forward with the agenda that I, I had in mind. And the thing is, is that I probably carry this state of mind daily. You know, what, and if I do, what kind of impact can I actually make? You know, when I, you know, normally on a day-to-day, -day, I just kind of already have my set intention on how I want to go about things. And I, I stay pretty committed to that. And I reflected even further after this weekend, you know, how is that different than, you know, white folks in an organization sticking to their comfort level uh, with ease, the ease of privilege. And so I had to ask myself, you know, what, what do I want to give up uh, in order to make change? And again, as I said, this isn't just about giving, giving up for others or just self-sacrifice. Uh, this doesn't have to work outwardly. Again, saving all beings includes yourself. And so Another example is after speaking with my wife about this topic, she kind of put herself out there for an example, but I feel that what she brought forth, most of us can identify uh, in regards to our own awakening. So one of her stated vows or values is to awaken and to have self-compassion. However, uh, you know, how often do we have a hidden value of uh, protecting maybe against fear, uh, the fear of not being successful, uh, avoiding pain, uh, avoiding loss, or, you know, any of, of the suffering that life guarantees. So how this shows up uh, could be an over-reliance and having to know things, uh, having to be in control or arrange things so that we can predict life and life situations. We may take this control by striving for perfection uh, around our physical self, our career, through planning, stressing, and attempt to head off what we fear. 
And this truly can get in the way, uh, or again, you know, kind of compromise our ability to really take time and practice, to take walks in nature, to spend time with those that we love, or to serve others and practice generosity. Looking at the time here. So uh, the Bodhisattva path is not just about revealing our hidden values to get in the way, um, but we also need to be able to create um, our, our vows, our stated values, our intentions, so that we can strengthen our commitment um, to get to the promised land or to the far off land, just like jumping mouse. So to help kind of cultivate uh, uh, our individual vows, um, I wanted to bring in a teaching uh, from Jack Cornfield about the Bodhisattva vow. Uh, and and in, in that, we'll have a, a prompt to do a little bit um, of journaling. And I really connected with uh, his description of the Bodhisattva path. Excuse me for busting out the phone on a Dharma talk, but uh, that's where it is. So Jack said, the, Bodhi, or the uh, Bodhisattva is a Sanskrit word for a being who is devoted to awakening and to acting for the benefit of all, all that lives. The way of the Bodhisattva is one of the most radical and powerful of all Buddhist forms of practice. It is radical because it states that the deep fulfillment of happiness comes from serving the welfare of others as well as ourselves. Our highest happiness is connected with the well-being of others. The Bodhisattva's path is a, striking is a striking contrast with the excessive individualism of our culture. Every wisdom tradition tells us that human meaning and happiness cannot be found in isolation, but when it, but when it comes about through generosity, love and understanding, or excuse me, but comes about through generosity, love, and understanding. The Bodhisattva, knowing this, appears in a thousand forms, from scientist to teacher, activist or nurse, from a caring grandmother to an engaged global citizen. Meditators often recite the Bodhisattva vows when they sit, offering the benefit of their practice for the sake of others, Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to bring liberation to us all. Like the ancient Hippocratic oath, the vow to serve the sick taken by every physician, the Bodhisattva vows to serve the welfare of all. In a more poetic fashion, the Dalai Lama regularly recites Bodhisattva vows based on the words of the beloved sixth century sage Shanti Deva. May, may I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on a path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick, a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles, and for the boundless multitudes of living beings, 
May I bring substance and awakening, enduring like the earth and the sky, until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. He continues, uh, psychologically, this is an astonishing thing to say. Does that mean that I am personally going to save 7 billion humans and trillions of other beings? How can I do so? When we think about it from our limited sense of self, it is impossible. But when we understand that there is a deep intention of the heart, we can begin to fulfill it. To, say, to take such a vow is to set a direction, a sacred purpose, a statement of wisdom, an offering, a blessing. We are not separate. We are interdependent, declared the Buddha. Without this understand, or without understanding this, we are split between caring for ourselves or caring for the troubles of the world. When the world is seen with the eyes of a bodhisattva, there is no I and other, there is just us. Poet Diane Ackerman has created a modern version of the bodhisattva vows with these lines in her poem, School Prayer. I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. So Jack invites us to create our own bodhisattva vow. Sit quietly for some time. Let your body and mind be at rest. Then ask your heart, if I were to make a vow to set the compass of my heart, to give voice to my highest intention, what would it be? And then listen for an answer. I need not be a poem. It need not be a poem. It might be as simple as I vow to protect those in danger or I vow to be kind. Let your heart instruct you. As you quiet your mind, steady your heart, you can set your deepest intention. It will, help, it will help you be strong for the long haul. Then get up joyfully, plant seeds for a more compassionate future, educate yourself about social justice, stand up against racism and hatred, give voice, time, energy, care to alleviating suffering and tend to our collective well-being. Your freedom empowers you to contribute to the world and your love will show you the way to do so. So with that uh, beautiful message, so straight to the point, uh, so in the path of, um, on the footsteps of Jumping Mouse, um, I'm gonna be quiet now and uh, maybe give two, three minutes for you to just either sit with that, sit with whatever is coming to mind. If you want to write down uh, a guiding intention, I invite you to. And um, yeah, in about two and a half minutes or so, we will uh, open things up for question and answer. <laughs> 